I'd like to sing a song for you this morning. I'd like to, but I'm not going to. Uh, instead, I'm going to read part of it to you. It's called Not Where I Belong by a group named Building 429. And here's what it says. Sometimes it feels like I'm watching from the outside. Sometimes it feels like I'm breathing, but I'm alive. I won't keep searching for answers that aren't here to find. So when the walls come falling down around me, when I'm lost in the current of a raging sea, I have this blessed assurance holding me. All I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. Take this world and give me Jesus. This is not where I belong. I've heard this song several times. But Thursday, uh, we were driving to the city. And I heard it came on the radio on K-Love and it really got a hold of me. And that idea that, that I'm not where I belong, that I'm not home yet, is something that really got me. That's what the Holy Spirit used to, to grab me and sort of shake me on a day where I was feeling down. I was feeling frustrated and agitated. And what the Holy Spirit shook me to remind me about is that I'm not home yet. And then while we live in this world, there are going to be things that, that frustrate me. There are going to be things that discourage me. There are going to be things that agitate me. But rather than let those things affect me negatively, I need to use them to remind me of the days coming where I'll be where I truly belong. And I think this is something we all need to be reminded of from time to time. We, we live here. And so it's so easy to get settled here that we forget that as believers in Jesus Christ, this world is truly not our home. This is not where we belong. And knowing that we are meant for another world should have some impact on the way that we live our day-to-day lives. And today we're going to look at a passage that helps us to see what kind of impact this knowledge should have. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 13 through 16. It's on page 927 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, let's get a stand on the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come, come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The title of the message this morning is Not Home Yet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. God, we praise you for your grace and your goodness. We praise you for all that you've given us in our life and all that you've done for us. And God, we... We want so much to live in the way that you want us to live, God. We want to live strangers and pilgrims. We want to live knowing that this world is not our home, that we're just passing through. So God, today as we seek to understand what that means from this passage, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to empower me to speak your words and your ways, God. That it wouldn't be me that we hear today, but it would be you. That you would speak through me to accomplish your will in each one of our lives. I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to to give us receptive ears and open hearts that we could take this and we could apply it to our lives. That we could see areas of our lives that need to change. And that God, that truly we would live differently tomorrow because of what's happened in here today. Help us to be surrendered to your word and to your spirit. Let it be the authority in our lives that we would respond and, and make any changes that you deem necessary in our lives. We ask God that you would uh, do your work in our midst and help us to be more like Jesus. Fill, just fill this place with your spirit and your glory 
Spirit this morning. Let us know that you're here and you're working our life. Guide us as we go throughout this week that we would live in the way that you'd want us to live. Be glorified in all that happens in this time. Be glorified in how we respond and how we live. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Hebrews was written to an unknown Jewish community. And this community was beginning to, they were, well they were beginning, they were suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, as they turned to Jesus Christ, things kind of went badly for them and they began to, to suffer some persecution and some hardships because of that. And at first they, they endured it well, they, they were suffering well and they kept going. But over time it wasn't getting any better. It wasn't getting any, it just wasn't easing up at all. And, and so they, they began to consider what if we went back to Judaism, right? Because this stuff didn't happen before. If we went back to what was comfortable, if we go back to what was familiar, maybe everything will go back to the way it was and our lives will be easier then. Uh, and as they were discussing this and trying to decide on this, somehow the author of Hebrews finds out about this and he writes this book to them to encourage them to keep on keeping on. And that's really what the whole book is about. It is about not giving up on your faith when things get hard. And the basic message that the author gives them throughout the first part of the book especially is Jesus is better. Right? Jesus is better than anything you came out of. Jesus is better than whatever you might go back to. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Follow Jesus. Trust Jesus. Stay with Jesus. Then when he gets to chapter 11, he begins to remind them about the importance of faith. Now, Hebrews 11, probably a very familiar passage. Um, Probably in the book of Hebrews, the most familiar chapter. We, we probably know it as something like the Hall of Fame of Faith or the Hall of Faith or something along those lines. Because what the author begins to do is to explain to them the importance of faith in their life. And, and really showing them how all of the heroes of the old, all of the Old Testament heroes, they were men and women of faith. Now, these were people who believed God, but their faith in God, it wasn't in a... I believe in God and I believe He's there, but I'll continue to do whatever I want to do kind of way. Instead, they believed God and they began to live their lives and they made life decisions based off of what God had revealed about Himself. They made life decisions based off of what God had told them was right and what God had told them was wrong. And they were determined to live for God because of their faith in God. And then when he gets to verses 13 through 16, where we're at today, what he's reminding them of is basically that, that they're not home yet. right? And, and I love the way that he does it because the first part of verse 13 is really important. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Now, I mean, just think about that for a second. Right? These, the men and women in the first 12 verses... They live their lives in faith. God said something that He would do for them. God said something He would give to them. They adjusted their lives and they lived in a way that said, I believe you, God. And yet, despite the fact they lived confident that God would do what He said He would do, they died having that faith. Many of them never received the promises that God gave to them. Right? Like Abraham. Abraham never saw his descendants as a multitude like the sands on the seashore, the stars in the sky. He didn't live to see that. Abraham never lived to see his descendants have a, a land to call their own. right? But they still trusted in God. They still believed in God. And, and look at what it goes on to say. But having received, not having received these promises, but having seen them afar off. 
Right? So God said, here's what I am going to do. And God gave them such a clear picture of these promises and what they would be like that they said, I, I see it. I, I mean, I mean, that is real. That is, that is going to happen. And then they, they embraced them. I believe that. I trust in that. I'm, I'm hoping in that. And then, it says that they, or they, they, they were assured of them, they embraced them, and then they confessed. Right? They lived differently. Because of their confidence that God would do what he had said he would do. And, and what they confessed, that this world was not their home. The promises of God of a better homeland, of something that was better to come, it reminded them constantly as they lived their lives, were not home yet. It reminded them that this world is not my home. And for us, and that's the main thing that we've got to understand as well, Right? That the promises of God, or confidence in the promises of God, remind me that this world is not my home. Right? Confidence in the promises of God reminds me that this world is not my home. That we, we are not home yet. Now, what would it mean? Right? We would say, probably we have confidence in the promises of God. Chances are the idea of this world not being our home is not new to anyone that's been a part of church for very long. But what does it look like to live that way? I think this passage gives us three ways to live when we're confident in God's promises and we know that we're not yet home. Number one, is that I live as a citizen of heaven. Live as a citizen of heaven. Now, they... They saw the promises of God afar off. They were assured of them. These things are going to happen. They embraced them. I trust this. And because of that, they confessed something. And they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims here on the earth. Right? And, and both of those words are kind of important. The idea of a pilgrim is someone who is, or a stranger, I'm sorry. Uh, the idea of a stranger is someone who's, who's in a land. But that's not really their homeland. Right now, a stranger is someone that is sort of a semi-permanent resident though. Right? They're not just on vacation. They're, they're there and, and they may, you know, buy a home, they may rent a home, they may get a job, they may stay there a while. But while they're there, they're still, this is still not their homeland. Right? And a pilgrim is, is even more temporary than a stranger. A pilgrim is not staying there very long. A pilgrim is just passing through, right? A pilgrim is someone that maybe is on vacation. They're just, they're driving from here to there, right? And, and where they're at now, that's not their destination, right? I've had friends of mine from eastern Oklahoma go to Colorado to go skiing, and sometimes they'll call me when they come through here, right? They're, they're traveling through Guymon, but it's not their destination. They're not staying here. Most of them don't even stop here. Uh, but they, they pass through here on their way somewhere else. That's a, that's a pilgrim. Right? And the idea is, and what I like is, it doesn't say in any particular country. Right? It says that they are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. It wasn't that they were just strangers and pilgrims in Canaan. It wasn't that they were just strangers and pilgrims in Egypt or somewhere else. What they did was, they saw the promises of God and they said, I, I believe that's going to come true. And I'm holding that as the hope that I have within me. And so this world as a whole, this world is not my home. 
This world is not what I'm looking for. This world is not what I'm living for. I am a citizen of somewhere else. And it says in verse 14, For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. They were looking for a better country. They were going somewhere better than this world could offer. They were living, even though in the Old Testament they didn't really understand it fully, they were living as citizens of heaven. They understood that this world with its values, it wasn't the world that they were supposed to live in. They understood that this world with its, its idols and its gods and its priorities, those were not their gods. Those were not their idols. Those were not their priorities. They lived to a higher standard. They lived as citizens of heaven in a foreign country. And that's a very biblical idea. Paul says very much the same thing. Our citizenship is in heaven. And the way I tend to think about this is when I was first, my very first duty station, the army was in Berlin, Germany. Right? And we lived in Berlin. It was in the middle of the city. And so we didn't have like a big military post. We had several smaller ones kind of all over the city. And one of the neat things is we had to travel a lot on the German transportation. We were out in the, we call the economy, out in the German public an awful lot of the time. And when you first arrive, one of the things that they remind you of is you have to follow German laws to an extent. Right? I mean, you have to, when you're out there, you have to do what is right and what they say. However, you also have to understand that there are things that are allowed in Germany that are not allowed in America. And even though you're living in a foreign country, and even though you're out in the economy of that foreign country, you are still an American. You are still an American soldier and you are bound by American laws. And if we were to get caught violating something that was legal in Germany, but illegal in America, we would suffer as criminals for that. We would suffer for that. We always had to remember we were Americans even though we were in a foreign country. We were pilgrims there. We were strangers there. But we had to live by the standards of the kingdom that had sent us. It's very similar for us as Christians. We live in America. And as Americans, there are things that America says is okay that the country that has sent us has says is not okay. And so as Christians, we do not live by American values. We live by values of the kingdom of heaven. We do not live by American standards. We live by the standards of the kingdom of heaven. Right? We do not prioritize the way that Americans prioritize. We prioritize in the way that citizens of the kingdom of heaven prioritize. Right? Coming to know Jesus Christ, it, it changes us completely. Not just our eternal destination, but how we live from this point until that. Our, our citizenship is changed, and our values should change, and we should live in a way that reflects we're strangers and pilgrims here in this world. Now, this passage is good, but what's really neat is to see it in its context, to see the passage that comes before it, because Paul is making a contrast. Their citizenship is in heaven, and so we live one way while we wait on what Christ is going to do for us, but he also kind of explains what the citizens of earth do. And look at what he says. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now... Tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Now, that passage is great, uh, but it's good. I like to look at it from the kind of the bottom up. 
Because first he mentions people who set their mind on earthly things. And to set your mind on earthly things, very simply, is to live by the values of earth. Right? It is to focus on the things of earth as opposed to the things of heaven. It is a, uh, to focus on the things that are, that are temporary instead of the things that are eternal. The things that are right now instead of the things that, that will be. Right? It is to make those things our value system, our priorities in the way that we live our lives. That is what it is to set your mind on earthly things. But those who set their mind on earthly things, there's something else that goes with that. And that is that their God is their belly and their glory is their shame. Now, the idea of their God is their belly doesn't require or refer just to food, right? It's not just saying they're they're just dominated by what they get to eat in life. What it's talking about is basically all of our physical desires, right? Those who set their mind on earthly things, right? What dominates their life are their physical desires, right? The things that, that they want to do, the things that they enjoy doing. What That is what is primary for them. They make that the God of their life, meaning that that's what dominates them. Right? If they want to do it, they will. If they don't want to do it, they won't. If it's enjoyable to them, they'll do it. If it's not, they won't. They, they rarely do anything that doesn't benefit them in some way that they've determined is fun and effective and what they want out of life. Now, one of the things that's kind of powerful about those whose God is their belly is it says that their glory is their shame. And what that means for us is a lot of times when our God is our belly, we become very proud. Of, of certain things, right? We maybe someone's God in their belly. It means that their 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 sexual conquest. They become very proud. How many people they've slept with? They become very proud of how much liquor they can drink. They become very proud at all the stuff they can accumulate and all the toys that they have. But the day is going to come where they stand before Jesus Christ. And when they stand before Him, they're going to give an account to the life that they've lived and what they have made their God. And then they're going to look at what they were so proud of. And they are going to be terribly ashamed that they made that the focus of their lives. And and it's bad, but it goes on. He said, whose end is destruction. Those who set their mind on earthly things, whose focus is the here and the now, their God is their belly, their end is destruction. That's bad. But it gets worse because he says they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And he says he tells them that even weeping. And when I first started studying that, I thought, why is Paul weeping as he tells them about people who are enemies of the cross? Because if you've read Paul's letters, he calls people out by name frequently. He has no problem calling people out and saying they're wrong, have nothing to do with them, turn them away, uh, and all kinds of things. So why is he weeping about these people? When you look at the context, Paul isn't speaking so much of false teachers here as he is about people. And these are people who would profess to be Christians. These are people who would profess, I have received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And despite that profession, they're still focused on earthly things. Their God is still their bellies. And their end is still destruction. That's why Paul's weeping. These people are deceived. They have think that they're saved, but they have not made a break from the past. They're not living as citizens of heaven. They're living as citizens of earth, and they're still on the broad path that leads to destruction. And the fact that they're deceived by that, it, it breaks Paul's heart. He, he hates that. See, the, where we focus, whether we live as a citizen of heaven and focus on having those values, or whether we live as a citizen of earth and focus on having those values, well, it's pretty significant. It says a lot about us. Uh, and Paul would say it is a testimony to whether or not our faith is genuine, whether or not we are born again, whether or not we are going to heaven. 
And, and that's, a, that's a powerful thought. Because we know, we, we know we're, we're not supposed to live by this world's values. We know that we're not supposed to live by this world's priorities. But it's so easy to do that because, well, we live in this world. And what we have to do is we have to focus on saying, I believe the promises of God. They are true. I'm embracing them as my hope. So despite what the world says is okay, I'm going to reject that and I'm going to live as a citizen of heaven. And that requires us to be different. To be different than the world around us. Like Romans 12 uh, talks about, do not be conformed to this world, but be conformed to the image of Christ. And, and we know, we've, again, that's a very familiar verse, do not be conformed to this world. And I think the message paraphrase has the most convicting translation of this ever. Do not become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. I mean, that's, that's kind of a powerful thought, isn't it? I mean, have you ever looked at how the Bible says Christians are supposed to live? Not just in morality. I mean, we, we know that. But in how we're supposed to, to think. I like Philippians 4, 8. Think on these things that are right, true, good, pure. Right? How we're supposed to prioritize our lives. How we're supposed to put others ahead of ourselves. How we're supposed to be different than the world around us. How we're supposed to love our enemies and love others as God has loved us. Right? And you think about all of these things. And then you think about, well, how do we really live? Right? Do I, do I really have heavenly priorities in my life? Am I really selfless or am I still selfish? Am I merciful or judgmental? And don't we often just fit in with our culture really well without even thinking about it? I mean, how many the things that we do that our culture says is good, right, and acceptable, do we even ask ourselves, I wonder if I should be a part of this? I wonder if this is what a citizen of heaven would do. I mean, do we, do we ever do that? I'm not saying you. Right, I do it perfectly. You guys need to do it. I'm saying us. Us. I mean, do, do we evaluate stuff like that? We should. We are citizens of heaven. That should affect how we live. What we're a part of. What we value. How we do our priorities. How we act and how we react. But in order to really understand this and to live like that, I have to have have confidence that God's promises are true. That what He's offering me is worth it. And if I'm confident in God's promises, I'll know this world is not my home. And the way I'll show this world is not my home is that I will live as a citizen of heaven. But also, I'll live for Jesus no matter what. I live for Jesus no matter what. Look at verse 14. Or I'm sorry, verse 15. It says, And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come from, come out, they would have had opportunity to return. That's kind of, to me, a neat thing. Here's what it says. They could have quit at any point. Right? God called Abraham out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeas, said, Go to a land that I will give you. Didn't even tell him where to go, just go this way. Abraham packed up his family and he moved out. 
And as Abraham packed up and as he moved out, there were lots of different things that came up. Hardships and trials, things not working as he thought. God not delivering him a child when he thought the time should come. And on and on and on it goes. Do you know that at any time, Abraham could have gone and lived in a tent. Right? I mean, going from Ur of the Chaldees was kind of a civilized place. He kind of had a house to living as a pilgrim and as a stranger to living in, in tents and packing up and moving around. At any point in time, he could have said, you know what, I'm tired of camping out. I'm going back to where I came from. And he could have picked up his stuff, and he could have picked up his family, and he could have went back to civilization. He had that ability to do that. At any point, Isaac could have gone back to his wife's family and said, let's just go live there. Jacob, when he left with Rachel and their their family, he could have went back his father-in-law and said, hey, I'll keep serving you. I'll, I'll go back. It's, it's too hard out here. I'm going to go back and do this. But they didn't. Instead, they, they pressed on. And when you read about their stories, there were difficulties. There were hardships that came. And, and the Bible never really says that they, they were tempted to go back. This is kind of the only indication we have of that they could have. But I, I kind of I wonder if they did. But I wonder if there were times where they said... It's just too hard living in a tent. It's too cold. It's too hot. There's no Walmart. I really want to go back to the real world where I don't have to grow everything. And I don't have to to raise everything. And I can go to the market and I can have a house. I don't have to move because I'm on Scott's land and now he's mad at me. So I've got to find another place I can go stay the night. I wonder if they ever just said, "I I want to go home. They could have. But here's what would have happened. Had they gone back, they would have missed out on what God wanted to do in them, for them, and through them. But there are, there are things that God did that He only would have done as they stayed where they were. But Abraham saw God do all kinds of things that God would not have done in his life back at Ur. Isaac and Jacob saw God do all kinds of things for them that would not have happened had they gone back to where their wives came from. They only experienced the promises of God and these blessings of God as they continued in obedience and as they continued in faith. And it's the same with us. Galatians 6.9 says not to grow weary in well-doing because you will reap a harvest in due time if you faint not. If we quit, we miss it all. We'll see God do something if we stick it out. And you know the thing is, following Jesus, it's always going to be hard. There are always going to be difficulties that come with it. There's there's the difficulty of our own sinful nature not wanting us to do it. Do you guys experience that? You know what Jesus wants you to do, but you don't want to do it. There's a part of you saying... Don't do that today. Today, let's just do something else. Right? Do you, is that just me? Right? The, the struggle, and, and the more we struggle, it doesn't necessarily get easier for me. It's just, it's always there. It's always the pull. Right? And then, we do our best, and maybe it doesn't work out the way that we think it ought to. Things don't, don't happen the way we want them to happen. And we, we say, well, You know, the Bible said if you do this, this will happen. I'm doing this, but it's not happening. I'm praying, but not receiving. I'm believing, but it's not coming. I'm obedient, but this isn't going on. And we think, why try? Why keep up? Why keep going? Or or just hardships come into our life. 
Right? Things go badly. People get sick. We have a car wreck. Things, we come up short in our money. Bad things begin to happen. And we think, you know what? I've tried to live for Jesus. I've tried to do what I'm supposed to do. And now this isn't working right in life in general. Why bother? Right? What do we do in that time? Well, the easy thing for all of us to do is quit. And I would say, there is a temptation within all of us to quit at times. There is a temptation that says, why try? Why press on? It's just too hard. I'm going to give up. And that is something we can do. But in doing so, we always miss out on what God will do through our continued faith and our continued obedience. For we will reap a harvest of blessing in due time if we faint not. I think in the Christian life, one of the things we've got to get used to is this idea of delayed satisfaction. Now, I talked about this Wednesday night, so if you were here Wednesday night, you can take a nap and wake up in just a minute, unless you were sleeping Wednesday night, in which case you need to stay awake and hear this. Um, But delayed gratification... Delayed gratification is, I put something off that I want to do now, because later there's something better that I'm going to receive from it. Right? I'm, I'm going to not do this that I want to right now, so that later I can receive something that I think is better. Right? And that's what, really, the Christian life is all about that. The promises that God gives to us, most of them are not for right now. Most of them are for far away, for at a later time. Right? I mean, there's no, like, I, I'm promised that if I'm obedient right now, immediately something happens. Even the Galatians 6, 9. If we faint not. I mean, that is, I keep obeying today, and later on something happens because of that. And that's what the Christian life is all about. And that's how we have to learn to live, so that we can live for Jesus no matter what. Turn back a page or two to Hebrews 10. And look at verse 32. This passage, I think, is perfect. It shows people who understood what it meant to live for Jesus no matter what. People who understood the idea of delayed gratification. He says first, But remember the former days in which after you were illuminated, right after you were saved, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. So he's calling them to mind something that happened in their past. They were saved. They turned from sin and from Judaism and to Jesus Christ. And immediately they began to suffer. And it tells us something about their sufferings. Partly, well, they were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations. Right? So, reproaches and tribulations. Reproaches is people making fun of them. They turned from Jesus, they turned from sin to Jesus Christ, and immediately people began to harass them publicly, to mock them, to belittle them in front of others, to humiliate them, and they had to endure that. Partly, um, with tribulations, right? But keep in mind, the tribulations were still a part of the spectacle. Right? So whatever happened in these tribulations, whether they were beaten, whether they were thrown down, whatever happened in this time, it happened in public and people saw what other people did to them and it added to the humiliation that was already a part of their lives. And it goes on. And partly, why you became companions with those who were so treated, for you had compassion on me and my chains. Right, so, a part of the trouble was 
that they jo- that they willingly joined with other people who were also suffering like that. Right? So imagine you see someone being beaten or belittled. What do you do? What do you do? Right? Not just by one person that you can go and punch, throat punch and put them out of business, but by a multitude of people. There is a crowd of people belittling them, mocking them, and hurting them. What do you do? Right? Do you duck your head and go on like you didn't see it? Or do you go join with them and say, I'm what they are. I'm a part of their lives. I, I believe what they believe. Well, that's what they did. They went to see the author in prison. Right? Going to prison at that time meant they took food to him. They took help to him. And by doing that, they, they kind of made themselves guilty by association. The Roman Empire kind of believed in guilt by association. If I'm a criminal and I'm having lunch with Britch, then they're probably going to kill Britch when they kill me just to be sure he's not a part of whatever rebellion I'm trying to lead. That's just kind of the way they did things. So here they went and saw somebody in prison and said they're in prison for Jesus for being whatever it is that went on with that. And they're saying... I believe this too. Brave, bold. But that wasn't all that they suffered. And joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Think about that. Uh, that to me, that I joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Right? So, the plundering of their goods. They took their stuff. Did they come into their house and loot their houses? I don't know. When they went to the store and they were walking out, did they push them down and take their stuff? I don't know. But they plundered them of their goods. And these people, as it happened, they not only just, they didn't just endure it. They joyfully accepted it. Why? Knowing that you have a greater and more enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. You know what they said? They said, go ahead and make fun of us. I've got Jesus. Go ahead and take my stuff. I have rewards in heaven that you can't touch. Go ahead and lump me in with the criminals. Because I am righteous and free in Jesus Christ. And there's nothing you can do about it. Right? They, they knew that what they had waiting on them was far better than what they were giving up right now. They could not take anything of even remotely as important value as what God was going to give them. And so they suffered joyfully, all of these things, knowing that they had something better waiting on them. They had determined they would live for Jesus no matter what. They could have turned back. I mean, and that's me. That's one thing always important to understand when we look at the suffering of the New Testament saints. Their suffering was not because they were gossips and busybodies. Right? Their suffering was because of Jesus Christ and their commitment to Him. And at any time, it could have ended. All they had to do was go back. All they had to do was calm down, back down, and all of that would stop. All of that would go away. But they refused. They were going to live for Jesus no matter what because they knew that what He offered was better than what the world could take Look at what he goes on to say in verse 36. Or verse 35, we'll start there. Therefore do not cast away your confidence which has such great reward. For you have need of endurance that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. What do they need to receive? Right here all this time, they have hoped for what God is going to give them. They're waiting on that. They're hoping for that. They're saying that's better. They've seen these promises afar off. They've embraced them. They've confessed that they're strangers and pilgrims here. And they want them. What do they need so they can receive that finally? 
They need endurance. They need to keep on keeping on. They need to follow Jesus no matter what. And the decision that they make is largely going to be based upon what they believe about the promises of God. Do they really believe that God's promises are better than what the world offers? Do they really believe that what God will give is better than what the world can take? Do they really believe Romans 8 and 18? That the sufferings of this life cannot be compared to the glories of the life to come. See how we respond when things get hard. Well, it says a lot about our, our faith. Proverbs says that if you, if you quit in the day of adversity, your strength is not very strong. I think you could paraphrase that to say, if you give up when things get hard, your faith is not very great. How we respond when it gets hard. This is an awful lot about our, our confidence and the promises of God. But when, when we know that this world is not our home, then we're willing to give up things in this life. We're willing to say no to immediate things so that we can say yes to greater things at a much later date. That there has to be within us a commitment. I am going to live for Jesus no matter what. I'm going to faithfully serve him. I'm going to do his will. I don't care how the world responds. I don't care how the world reacts. I don't care how anybody else responds. I'm confident his promises. What he offers is better. I am going to follow Jesus. Confidence in the promises of God. It makes us say this world is not our home. So I'm going to live for Jesus no matter what. And then finally... Live for God's approval. Verse 16, it says that they didn't return because they desired a better. That is a heavenly country, right? They, were, they, they desired what God offered, not what the world had, and so they kept going. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now that's a, to me, that's a pretty, kind of a powerful thing, isn't it? Does it mean, if, if God was not ashamed to be called their God, does that mean it could be possible that God could be ashamed? That we would call Him our God? I don't know. But we know that for them, they desired... What God offered, they desired what God could give them more than what they desired from the world. And as they began to to make life decisions based upon God's promises, and as they began to say no to the immediate so they could say yes to the later, God was proud of them for this choice. Their faith motivated them to live this way, and thus they received God's approval. Now, we see the same idea in Hebrews 11.2. That by it, by faith, the elders received a good testimony. That they received God's approval because of their faith. And I think, what do we, I mean, do we, do we want God to say about us? You ever thought about that? What does God say about you? What does God say about me? You know, I think about like in the book of Job, Satan comes and presents himself and he's been roaming throughout the earth. And God said, have you, have you, have you considered my servant Job? It's a righteous man in all the earth. It's devoted to me. I always read that and I think, man, I wonder if God would say, have you considered my servant Stacy? Right? I mean, what would, what would flow after that? You know, 
for them, what flowed after that was, I'm proud of them. They are my children. I am their God. I am proud of that. And I thought about this. I was thinking about the, the story. Matthew 25, verses 14 through about 30 or so. Um, the story about the talents. Right? The master of the kingdom of heaven is like this. And a master calls his servants to him and he gives them each a certain amount of talent, a certain amount of money. And he gives them what they have according to their ability. So some are really good, so they get more. Others are not quite as sharp at doing things, so they get less. But they get enough that they can all be successful in what they have. And then they're told to go and use what the master has given them for his purposes, for his will. So a time goes on, and they use what the master has given them. And then the day comes when the master calls them together. And he says, let me, let me see what you've done with what I have given you. Of course, one has doubled it and another one has made some more and they were very faithful with it. And the the master says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter to the joy of your Lord. Of course, then there's the third one who didn't do anything. The master gave him something and he he did nothing with it at all. So he's told, depart from me. You worker of iniquity, and out of darkness will there be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which doesn't sound pleasant at all. And I don't know about you, but I want, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And for them, a part of what they had to do, again, it was that idea of delayed gratification. How, how many things of this earth did they have to resist In order to stay faithful to God. How many things do they have to say no to now. So that they could later hear well done good and faithful servant. And there's just no telling. For us that's what we'll have to do that as well. Living for God and living for his approval. I mean if if that's truly all that matters. It's hearing well done good and faithful servant. That means that I'm going to have to be willing to let people down here misjudge me. It means I'm going to have to be willing down here to to not have certain friends that will not accept the life I'm going to live and the way I'm going to go. It means that there's going to have to be certain things I'm going to have to say I'm not going to do. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm living for Christ and I want to hear well done. Good and faithful servant. I mean that is a part of what it's like. Are we willing to do that. I mean, we, we would all say, I think, that we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But are we willing to make the decisions today that make that happen then? It's like a story I heard several years ago. Um, and I don't remember for sure who it was. I think it was Tiger Woods. Somebody told him he would love to play golf like you do. And Tiger Woods responded and he said, no, you wouldn't. He goes, well, I would. He said, no. He said, guys tell me that all the time. He said, but I tell them, come meet me at four in the morning so that we can start hitting the golf ball. And well, they don't want to do that. He said, what you want is you want to be able to play like I play, but you don't want to be able to put, you don't want to be, you're not willing to put in the hard work to be able to play. You want it to just magically happen. I think that's a lot of times how we are about these things. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But we don't want to make the decisions day to day right now that would enable that to happen then. And that's what we have to do. 
In order to hear well done on that day, we have to live the way he wants us to in this day. And make day-to-day decisions that we know he approves of, that, that causes us to take what he has given us and put it to work for his glory. And if we do that, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And if we do that, well, it's because we're confident in the promises of God. And, and we know this world is not our home. We're just passing through. I'll close with another story. I, there's a story, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a good story, so I'm going to tell it anyway, um, about a missionary who spent his life in Africa. And as often happened in, in the days in the 50s, missionaries were not very well provided for, so they, they often had very little. Um, didn't get to come home very often to see family and things like that. His wife died overseas. They, they were not able to afford to come back for a funeral, so he buried her there. And then finally, he did his time, and he was retiring, and he was coming home. And as he came home on the boat, they, sh- they came ashore, and as they were getting ready to depart, Teddy Roosevelt was also on the boat, and he had been doing big game hunting in uh, Africa as well. And so when he came down, there was this, this big cheer, and woo-hoo-hoo, you know, all the stuff that would follow a president of the United States as he was coming back. And then when this guy came off, there was no one. I mean, there was no one from his denomination, no one, no one waiting for him at all. And having given his life in Africa and doing all that he did, he, he said, you know, God, I just, where's mine? Where's mine? You know, I, I've, I've given my life. I've told those people about you all that I could. My family, my wife is still there. Where, where's my reward now that I'm home? And what God said to him, he said what God said to him was, son, you're not home yet. In this life. We're not going to see the rewards. We're not going to see it all. And we may have to live like these patriarchs. We see them afar off. We embrace them and we confess them. And then we die without ever really seeing them come to pass. But I understand that's okay. Because we're not home yet. Live for then. Right now. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.